know who's up today. Somebody is. It's Valerie. Okay. Valerie down here. Uh, while the kids are coming down, let me say this. Uh, some of you have said, hey, pediatrician doesn't want the kid uh, in the nursery. That's fine. Okay, listen, I want you to always know that. Not just because of sickness at any time. It doesn't bother us. All right? We, we like babies around here. So if, if your kids, um, if you don't want to put them in there, that's great. They don't bother me. I can preach through anything. Okay? I even made it through the, the great nose blowing of 2000. Uh, 20 a couple weeks ago down here on the front row. So I can handle that, all right? And if enough of y'all get quarantined, we may have more babies, so that's fine. Hey, If you got a Bible, you can open up to Exodus chapter uh, 5 this morning. Exodus chapter 5, uh, we'll be covering the whole chapter. And so in Exodus chapter 5, I'll go ahead and start reading in verse 1. It says this. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who's the Lord, that I should know the Lord? And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then he said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day is when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to the people and you have not delivered your people at all. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. And again, thank you for all you've given us. Thank you for your word. Father, I thank you that in a text like Exodus 5, where there doesn't seem to be a lot of good, that 
that there's so much good because you show us exactly what we're to do with disappointment, what we're to do when life doesn't quite work out like we think it should or, it, or we, were, we thought it would. And so I pray that today that each and every one of us could take our disappointments and we could turn those and give those to you, that we could take our eyes off of ourselves and ultimately look to your cross to see where there you worked all things together for our good, that above all today we make a big deal about Jesus through this text. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So, so last time uh, we saw Pharaoh, a couple weeks ago, we saw Moses, excuse me, a couple weeks ago. Uh, he had finally agreed to, to run up and, and run the race that God had, had called him to. And so he leaves where he's at. Uh-oh, uh-oh. And he goes to the children of Israel. He performs the signs that God had, had given him to perform. And when you know it, the people believe just like God said they would. And at the end of chapter 4, we see the people bowing their heads. We see them worshiping God because he's seen their afflictions, because he's visited them in their trouble. And what we said was this, is that as a people, as believers, can we worship in our waiting? So, so while we wait for God to answer our prayers, right? While we wait to get through all this craziness that we're in right now, can we be a people that would worship in our waiting, See, on this side of the cross, we have more reason to worship than the people uh, of Israel did. Because God has sent his son Jesus to take our ultimate problem, our sin, upon himself and to rescue us from our sins. See, in dying and rising again, God has shown us that he is a God who is for us and not against us. That he's not a God who stands back from our trouble, but instead he leans into our trouble. He leans into our mess. And as Psalm 40 says, he pulls us up out of the miry clay and he rescues us. See, the cross is proof that God is using all the things that happen to us in our lives, whether they're good or bad, for, his, for our good and for his glory. And one day, this God will return to make all things new. And so we can worship while we wait for that day. In their book, actually in their excellent book, I might add, The Life We Never Expected, Andrew and Rachel Wilson, they tell a story about a chocolate orange. And so what they say is to picture yourself out at a very fancy restaurant. You're out, you're having a great time, right? Maybe in a few months from now, okay? Not, not right now, but in a few months from now. Right, when we all get back out, right? And, and, and we're out eating and, and you're having a great time. The meal's over, everybody's looking over to the dessert menu and the host stands up and he says, hey, I've got good news. I've already purchased the best dessert on the menu for everyone. And at that time, the waiter comes out and he's carrying about 12 uh, gold balls, right? About the size of a tennis ball. And he begins to hand those out to everybody and so everybody begins to open up the gold ball, and what they find out is that it is a chocolate-covered orange, okay? It's the best thing the restaurant has, and so everybody begins to eat it. Everybody begins to, uh, man, this is not good, is it? Sorry, Chad. Hold on. Hold on. There. I think I got it. Don't move. Everybody's eating it, right? Everybody's enjoying it. You hear the sounds that people make when they have a good dessert, right? Mm, 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 and you know, all that. And so you're, you're ready because people are eating yours and you start opening yours up and all of a sudden you peel it back and what you see is you got an orange. I mean, not a chocolate covered orange, you got an orange, right? And, and you know how oranges are, it takes an engineering degree to open the thing, 
right? And so finally you, you open it and, right, you're shooting citric acid in your eye while you're trying to eat it. And, and so you're eating it and all the juice is running down your hands and it's nasty and it's gross. And, and in your mind, you're trying to be thankful for the orange, right? You're trying to go, well, at least I still got an orange, right? And in, in reality, the orange is better for me than, than all that cocoa and milk fat and butter and all that over there. But, man, it'd sure be nice to have that chocolate-covered orange. And Andrew puts it this way. He says, so there are times when we're wiping the citric acid out of our eyes and watching our friends enjoying their chocolate when it feels spectacularly unfair, when we wish we could retreat to a place where everyone had oranges so we wouldn't have to fight so hard against the temptation to comparison shop and wallow in self-pity. We know that oranges are juicy in their own way. We know that they're good for us and that we'll experience many things that others will miss. But we wish we had a chocolate one all the same. And Andrew closes by saying this, discovering that your kids have special needs is a lot like that. Now, that's my experience. But if you're real honest, all of you have had the exact same experience at some time. But by nature of just being human, you have been let down and you have been disappointed with life at some point. There are areas in your life that, again, if you were honest, right, if we, we let go of the whole Christian veneer where I'm okay, right, everything's good, and you, were, you would look me in the eyes and say, yeah, there are areas of my life where it did not turn out like I expected it to turn out. I mean, maybe it could be that marriage wasn't everything you thought it was going to be. Or maybe that dream job just wasn't what you thought it would be. Or maybe the dream house didn't feel the restlessness in your spirit. Or, or maybe if you're a student or a parent right now, maybe the disappointment from seeing an athletic career, an academic career kind of be put on hold right now while we wait has left a, a hole in your heart, a disappointment in your heart. I mean, if you're a Christian, you probably have a story, right, of a time where you really felt the Lord telling you to go speak to a friend or family member to tell them about Jesus, and you were so gung-ho to go do it, and you go to that friend or that family member to tell them about Jesus, and it did not go how you thought it would go, right? Either you flubbed the presentation, or either they got really angry, or, or maybe it just was kind of... And right here in the start of chapter 5, this is where we find our friend Moses. This is where we find the children of Israel. At the end of chapter 4, they're riding high, right? God told him, gather the elders together, show them the signs. The elders believe, and all of a sudden, they're worshiping God. They've not even been rescued yet, and they're like, oh, God, you're so good. Oh, God, you're going to take us away from all of this. And so Moses is amped. He's fired up. He's ready to go tell Pharaoh to let the people go. And look what happens in verse 1, afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who's the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest. 
from their burdens, okay? So, so afterwards just, just indicates a period of time. We don't know if it's the next day from the end of chapter 4. We, we don't know if it's a couple weeks from now. But whatever it is, Moses and Aaron, and more than likely the elders of the people of Israel, go and they peer before Pharaoh. Right? And what they do is they utter a line that will from now on be used by prophets throughout the Old Testament. And what do they say? Thus says the Lord. First time in the Bible that's used by a prophet. In fact, Moses will use that continually throughout the first five books of the Bible. He's the only one that does. And then all the prophets from here, there on out will use that line. So he says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go so they may hold a feast. Now, I'd like to picture this scene as like you got Moses and his boys over here. You got Pharaoh and his boys over here, right? And it's like West Side Story or something, you know? And so here they come. We're on the playground, and they're about to have it out on the playground. And so as soon as Moses says, hey, thus says the Lord, let my people go, Pharaoh goes, the Lord? (laughs) Never heard of her. (laughs) Right? High five, boys. High five. Right here. Right? I don't know who this Lord is. Why should I obey your Lord? I have no idea who this Lord is. So guess what? Not going to let the people go. And so Moses, who's just rolled in there, riding high, thinking, man, God just heard our prayers. We've worshipped. Pharaoh's going to let the people go. All of a sudden, if you look what happens there, all of a sudden, him and Aaron kind of lose their nerve, don't they? Verse 3, they start backtracking pretty quick. They're they're like, hey, hey, you you, got to let us go. I mean, you got to let us just let us go three days into the wilderness. That's it, just three days so that we can sacrifice. And and, and if we don't, God's going to kill us. Right? He's going to fall on us with plague or with the sword. And so Pharaoh knows, all right, these guys are scared of me. Like, I have them now. And he says, listen, man, you're keeping these guys from their work, boys. You've got the elders with you. They should be out there working. Right? And another translation of that is, you've got the people running wild because you're in here acting like a bunch of heathens. They're out of control. Now run along. Get back to work. And he tells them the people of the land are many. What, what he's saying there is this, and don't miss it. He's saying, my people, my slaves, I own them. There are a lot of you, and because I own you and because I'm telling you to work, you're being idle right now, and you're not working, and that'll hurt my economy. So get out of here and get back to work, all right? Verse 6. That same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore the cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So that very day they leave, Pharaoh issues the decree that the people should no longer be given straw to make bricks. Now, now to us modern folks, they're like, well, what's the big deal there? What's well, a big deal? Right? Straw was necessary when you're working with clay bricks. And so what they would do is they would get the mud from the Nile, they would make it, and then they would throw straw in on top of it, mix it together, and as the bricks laid out to dry, the straw would bind it all together, right? It was kind of like, I was thinking of like Tinker Toys or something the other day. Like, it's the thing that kind of held it all together. And what's going on at this point is that every morning, the state would bring straw to the people of Israel. They would lay big piles of it out so that they could come and get it and they can make their bricks. And so Pharaoh says, that's not going to happen anymore. 
you guys got to go get your own. And oh yeah, one more thing, your quota is going to remain unchanged. I still want the same amount of bricks as before. So having to gather their own straw, that's going to slow them down a whole lot. But also, check this out. It's a shrewd move by Pharaoh. He's no dummy. He's now trying to divide the people against their new leader, Moses. He's trying to make them angry. He's trying to make them rebel against Moses. So verse 10. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it. But your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. All right? So notice verse 10. You can underline that if you want. It says, the taskmasters go out, and look what they say. Thus says Pharaoh. So so you're going to make uh, bricks without straw, and your quota is going to remain unchanged. And so what happens is, it says the people have to scatter all over the land to get straw. And what we see is they couldn't find straw, right? They, They couldn't find the long, healthy stocks of straw. Instead, it said all they could find was stubble. All they could find was the leftover, which means their bricks are not going to be near as good when you don't have healthy straw to hold all that stuff together. What's gone on here is that Pharaoh has put an impossible burden on the people. So what Pharaoh's done here is that he set work bosses over the foremen of the people of Israel. The work bosses tell the foremen what to do. The foremen tell the people of Israel what to do. When they can't meet their brick quota, the foremen, who at this point probably had it pretty good, right? They probably were pretty proud that they were foremen because they probably didn't have to work as hard. They probably got a few extra perks. All of a sudden now, the foremen are the ones that are getting dragged in. They're being interrogated, waterboarded. We don't know what they did to them, right? And then they're beat. And the foremen don't like this. So what do they do? They go appeal to Pharaoh. I mean, why why are you doing this to us? And Pharaoh's response is simple. You're lazy. That's why you keep saying, let us go sacrifice to the Lord. You're just a bunch of bums. You're lazy. You're idle. Now get back to work. Why are you even in here bothering me? Get back to your daily quota. Now notice the language in this section, okay? I've already pointed out some of it. Because this language here teaches us something very, very profound. So so in verse 10, Pharaoh says, thus says Pharaoh. What did Moses say in verse 1? Thus says the Lord. See, what's going on here is there is a battle coming between Pharaoh and God. There's a battle coming to determine who is the true God. Pharaoh and the people of Egypt believed that Pharaoh was God, that he was God on earth. And so Pharaoh is mocking the God of the Bible, saying, I don't know your God, and the reason I don't know your God is because guess what? I am God. 
I'm the only God around here. So forget thus says the Lord. It's thus says Pharaoh. That's how things run around here. And see, what it's showing us is that the people of Israel are having to make a choice. Like, who will they serve? Like, like where will the people's allegiance be? See, the other thing that's happening here is that God has said to the people of Israel, come out and rest. And Pharaoh was saying, no, stay and work. Pharaoh thinks they need to stay and work. God says they need to come and rest. See, it's all about who they're going to serve. The words translated work in verses 9 and 11, slave in verse 6, servants in verses 15 and 16, all those words share the same root word in Hebrew as the word worship. In Exodus 4, 22 through 23, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, uh, the Lord Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve, worship me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So see, Israel's being set free from the service of a cruel taskmaster into the service of another master. And they will serve this God through worshiping him. Tim Chester puts it this way. The point is that both God and Pharaoh think Israel should work, serve, and worship. The issue is this. Who will they serve? And what will that experience of service be like for them? So see, from a human perspective, the fight between God and Pharaoh has begun, and the winner receives the worship and the service of the people of Israel. And what's sad about it is if you look in verses 15 and 16, the people of Israel make their choice. Notice what they say in three, three times in verses 15 and 16. Your servants. We're your servants, Pharaoh. Right? Remember the end of chapter 4. They're worshiping God, right? They're oppressed, but they love God. God's awesome. God's going to take care of them. And then all of a sudden now, they're like, well, why would you do this to your servants? I mean, we work for you. We're your servants, remember? We're the reason things get done around here. We love you. We work for you, Pharaoh. And see, what God's trying to teach you and I is this, is who you work for is who you ultimately worship. And I don't mean your boss, right? Now, now some of you may worship your boss. I know Mary does. That's cool, right? I get it. I don't blame you. That's cool, Mary. But, but no, who are you trying to please through your work? Whose approval are you seeking to gain? Whose disapproval are you trying hard not to lose? Would it be the disapproval of your friends? Would it be the disapproval of your spouse? Who do you fear when you fail? Who are you tempted to lie to or exaggerate to in order to impress them? See, if you pay attention to the intensity of your minutes, your seconds, your efforts, your days, you will see who you're working for. That's actually who you worship. See, what's happening here is that the people of Israel are fearful and their fear is wrongly placed. Wrongly placed fear leads to greater slavery, right? It always does. Good fear creates confidence. Bad fear creates enslavement, okay? So let's just look. I wrote this sermon last week. How cool is this, right? So let's look at what's going on. We, we have people who have placed their fear in the wrong places. And because their fear is in the wrong places, we have panic. We have selfishness as people are going and buying and hoarding more than they need. 
because their fear is placed in the wrong spot. See, good fear, good fear is knowing the scriptures. Good fear is knowing that our God is the great I am. So we're confident that God is able and that God will accomplish all that he said he would. We're confident and we fear him because he's big, because he's holy, and because nothing can stay his hand. And when our fear is placed in him, then here's what happens. It's the opposite of panic. It's the opposite of selfishness. Instead, it creates a people who are calm. It creates a people who rest in this God. It creates a people who say, you know what? It's not about me because my God's got everything under control. And so because he's got it all under control, I can be a person who goes out and loves other people despite the harm or the danger it might bring to my own life. That's good news. And this is what's going on is that the people have placed their fear in the wrong spot. And it's just led to more enslavement as they continue to run back to Pharaoh and as they continue to call themselves his servant instead of their Lord, all right? And so verse 20 says this. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from, Aram, uh, from Pharaoh, which, by the way, it's just a bad move on Moses and Aaron's part. I mean, you know they're mad. Why are you waiting for them? And they said to them, the Lord look on us, on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. So again, they're, they're leaving Pharaoh's throne room Again, Moses and Aaron, for some weird reason, are standing out there. And remember, let's go back to chapter 4. The end, they're worshiping. God remembered us. He's going to save us. They had all this hope, but things didn't work out the way that they thought it would. They're disappointed in life, and so what do they do? They're going to blame Moses. They come out, and they say, man, way to go, boys. You proud of yourselves? Look what you did to us. You made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh, right? So what that means is just every time they look at us, they go, like, they make a bad face. They, they don't like the way that they look. We're disgusting to the Egyptians. So because of you two, because of your wild schemes, they're going to drive us into dust. You're going to be the death of us all, Moses. Thanks a whole lot for what you've done. It's your fault. What a leader, what a hero you've turned out to be, Moses. So, so that wave of excitement these guys were riding at the end of chapter 4, that has come crashing down now. See, it's this disappointment at life not going as they had planned that created this in their hearts. So verse 22, look what happens. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Now, we don't know if Moses said anything back to the children of Israel. Given his temper, I'm going to go out on a ledge. You know, I'm probably going, you one great, you know, right? He probably did something like that. But what we do know is this. Where does he turn his complaint to? He doesn't put it on the people. He doesn't put it on Pharaoh. Instead, he turns his complaint to the Lord. And he says, oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? I mean, remember, I told you not to send me. You sent me anyways. Why did you even send me? I told you to send somebody else. I mean, come on, God. Ever since I've come to Pharaoh, you've done nothing but evil. God, you're nothing but trouble. That's exactly what you are. And that's harsh, but, but can we at least appreciate Moses' candor? Can we at least appreciate the fact that he was brutally honest with God? I mean, God, I had all this planned out. I was riding high. We prayed. We worshiped. I thought things were going to get better. Things only got worse. And so now I'm angry at you and I am disappointed. So listen, it should be comforting to you and I to know that Moses is just like us. Amen? 
I mean, how many times do we forget the millions of ways that God has been so good to us? I mean, I only have a history degree, right? And I barely got that. But from what I've read so far, God has promised to take care of everything, hasn't he? Like, like remember, you're going to go to Pharaoh. You're going to tell him to let the people go. Yeah, I'm going to harden his heart. I'm going to be the one to do that. I'm going to take care of all that, right? But I'm still going to lead you out. So in other words, Moses, things are going to get a little bit harder. He should have known this was coming. But hey, who's got it all under control? I do. I am who I am. I be who I be. I'm the one that's taking care of all this. Moses, you're going to go meet with the elders. They're going to believe you. You're going to sing. You're going to rejoice. You're going to worship. But it's still going to get harder. So again, put that in our own lives. God blesses us with grace upon grace upon grace. And the first sign of difficulty and opposition, what do we do? Forget everything. We just throw it all out the door. We feel betrayed, we feel deceived, we feel lied to. We forget all the ways that God has answered our prayers and sustained us through really, really tough times. We forget about the common grace he's blessed us with to be able to even get up and come in here this morning, to take that breath for your health, for food, right? For toilet paper? Woo! For the fact that we live in a great community. There's very little gratitude in our hearts a lot of times for those kind of things. And you know why that is? Because we deserve all those things. That's exactly our mindset. We deserve it. We deserve it. We, we don't deserve to go through hard times. We don't go, deserve to go through economic hardships. We don't deserve to, to have to have a virus make us uh, come into our house for a few days. Like We don't deserve those things, God. We're better than that. See, it's forgetfulness that makes disappointment so much worse. But if we would remember all the ways God has been good to us, if we would bring to mind his faithfulness, listen, we can ride that wave a whole lot better, can't we? You can say, hey, guess what? I've been here before. I've seen tough times before. And God has been good. God has seen us through these kind of things before. When you just stop and take a minute to remember how good God has been in choosing to save somebody like you. You just take a minute to remember what a miracle salvation is. You didn't deserve that. But in his love and in his grace, he blessed you. With that, see, listen, I've ridden a lot of waves over the last five years in my personal life, right? I have. Um, all kinds of them. And this is a lesson I'm still trying to learn, that we can take disappointment and we can leverage disappointment for our good. We're going to have disappointment in our lives, aren't we? I mean, it's a given. We can all agree on that. It's a given. And the response isn't to set the bar low and have low expectation and be like, well, I'm just never going to get my hopes up and, you know, this is all going to be, just be Charlie Brown about everything. No, we always want to have high expectations. We want to constantly be handing those high expectations over to God. That's what we want to do. So, so in our bedroom, Mariah's got this sign that, that hangs over our, 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 our bed. And, and what it says is this. It says, if not, he is still Good. That is, that is a quotation taken from Daniel chapter 3, verses eight, verse 18. If you've grown up in church, you know that story, right? You have Nebuchadnezzar, he's made this big idol, and he says, hey, I want you to bow down and worship this sucker, right? I'm God, worship me. 
Well, what do our boys Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, right? They say, we're not going to do that. That's not God. You're not God. We worship the true God. And so Nebuchadnezzar has them tied up and thrown into a fiery furnace. And right before he does it, these guys look at Nebuchadnezzar and they say, hey, man, our God can rescue us. Our God can. Our God will deliver us out of your hand. But listen, even if he doesn't, he's still good. I don't think that's low expectations, do you? Well, he's probably just going to kill us. Oh, well. No, he can and he will. But listen, even if he doesn't, he's still good. And we will worship him no matter what he brings our way. See, we can hold those things up to God and say, hey, listen, I know you're good even in my disappointment. And even in my disappointments, I will continue to worship you. Here's the thing that God does with disappointments. This is the part we're not going to like is he takes our disappointments to reveal what's really going on in our hearts. He takes our disappointments to show us what we're really pursuing. He takes our disappointments to show us what we really desire, what we really want. And so maybe you're in here and maybe you would say today, hey, listen, life is not going like you thought it would. Maybe your current situation is a disappointment. And again, I get that. I think a lot of us would echo that, right? Stay-at-home moms, you're like, oh, gosh, don't let school be canceled another week. <laughs> right? That's a disappointment. We don't want that. We don't want school to go through June. We didn't want track or academics or all these things to be set aside. We don't want those things right now. Life could be a disappointment. But listen, in this time frame, maybe God's just trying to show you something about your own heart. Here's the other thing, though, and I know this is true, too. Maybe your disappointment comes from the fact that you got exactly what you wanted and that thing didn't fulfill you. I mean, so much of our disappointment comes from success. If you've ever read anything about the early church father, St. Augustine, you'll find out that guy was one of the most brilliant minds of all time. And it's crazy to read the stuff that he wrote so many centuries ago where he talks about how he got everything he wanted. There was nothing that, that was denied to this guy from power and prestige uh, to women. And what's crazy is after he finally reached the pinnacle of his career, he's walking home from standing in front of Caesar. He sees a drunk who's laying on the street, homeless and laughing. And he realizes in that moment that Augustine said, I got everything I wanted and I was miserable. And yet this homeless drunk is better off than I am, right? What about our boy Tom Brady? You remember after he won his third Super Bowl and somebody asked him what's next and he just looked at the camera and said, is, is this, there's, there's got to be more than this, right? Everything we wanted and that thing still didn't bring us happiness. It left us empty. See, disappointments show us that we often trust the blessings of Christ more than we do Christ himself. We trust him when we get what we want, but we don't trust him when trouble comes. So brothers and sisters, listen, when disappointment comes, can we be a people that hands those things to Christ? Could we be a people that would take our eyes off of ourselves and our navel gazing and our self-pity and instead turn our eyes to the cross? Because see, when we lift our eyes to the cross and we focus on Jesus crucified, here's what you see. You see God working good from evil. We see his love and commitment to you as he gives us his only son. And the more we gaze at the cross and the more we look into the beauty of the gospel, here's what happens. 
Your affections get rearranged so that you love Him, so that you trust Him more, so that in the good times and in the disappointing times, we're continuing to pour out all we have in worship and service to the one who loved us first. So if you would this morning, bow your heads and close your eyes with me. As I said earlier, I, I don't know where you're at, but I do know that I would, I would I, I imagine I'm accurate in saying that so many of us have so many disappointments this morning. Whether it's disappointment from life not going the way we want it to or disappointment from not being fulfilled the way that we wanted to be fulfilled in our career, in our marriage, or, or whatever. And so I don't know where you find yourself this morning, but, but what I would ask that you do is right there where you're at, could you take all of your disappointments, all of your fears, instead of just looking at ourselves and feeling sorry for ourselves, wallowing in self-pity, could we instead take those things to the Lord and hold them up to Him and say, hey God, yeah, these things have not turned out like I thought they would. Could we be honest like Moses and say, man, I just feel like nothing but bad has come my way lately. The Lord can handle those things, guys. And turn those things back to Him. And in a few moments as we begin to sing, could we be a people that would stand where we're at and say, even if He does not, He is still good. And that we could worship and sing to our rock and our Redeemer who is ultimately taking the greatest problem that we all have upon himself. And that is our sin that has separated us from him. And he's rescued and he's redeemed us and he's made a way for us to be right with God and it has nothing to do with us but everything to do with Jesus. And in doing that, he showed us that he, he is a God who loves us and cares for us. He is a God who leans into the mess. Not leans out of it, but leans in. And he is a God we can trust. Maybe you're here this morning, and maybe for the first time, you heard the gospel today, and that the Lord has graciously saved you this morning. Maybe you've been trying to find life and satisfaction in so many different things and those things have just left you empty. And, and today, for the first time, it just made sense. And so if that's you, listen, talk to somebody today. If you want to come and talk to me, I'd love to, to pray with you this morning. And maybe here in a few moments, you could stand and, and sing with us as a new believer. So Father, I thank you so much for this day, and I thank you for all that you've given us. I thank you that when disappointment comes, that we can take those things and hand them up to you, knowing that you hear, you see, you know. And that our, those disappointments are, are, are often given to us to show us what we're really worshiping. They're given to us as, as grace, as blessings, so that we could get our eyes off of those things or off of ourselves and turn our eyes back up to you. And so I pray today that we would do that. I pray that as we get ready to stand and sing, that we would not just mumble through this song in a few moments, but that we would lift our voices. And in the midst of a time that is disappointing for so many of us, we would sing to our Lord, to our rock, to our Redeemer. And especially when we come to that line, that we would sing what an amazing Father we have, that He would rescue us from our ruined life, from the mess that we made by taking our guilt and shame upon his shoulders and by rising again to defeat Satan's sin and death. Thank you, Father, for how good you are to us. 
Help us to always remember that. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you